If we can all open our Bibles to uh, page 398 and Psalm 36. Page 398, Psalm 36, verse 7. How priceless is your unfailing love, both high and low among men. Find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Continue your love to those who know you. Your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. See how the evildoers lie fallen, thrown down, not able to rise. Now we get to Luke 14. It's on page 739. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched... There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yokes of oxen and I am on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. 
Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'd encourage you to keep uh, that passage open in Luke chapter 14. We're going to be looking at that now. Uh, just, just quickly, if, you, if you're not familiar with Luke, if, uh, if you're wondering why is it part 2, uh, that's up on the screen. Uh, it's because Luke breaks up in 1 to 4, there's Jesus as a child and growing up, and then 4 to 9, Jesus does ministry up in the north in Galilee, his kind of hometown area. Then in 951, he decides, I'm heading to Jerusalem knowing that I'm going to die there. And from 9 to 19, he spends a long time on the journey. Uh, and earlier this year, we looked at uh, the first part of that journey, and we're, we're picking up again in the lead up to Christmas to look at that second part of Jesus' trip down to Jerusalem. Uh, that's why it's part two. So if you didn't catch the earlier parts, that's okay. You can read it later on. It's already published for you. Uh, but why don't we pray that God might speak to us clearly in his word today. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we ask that you might humble us. Uh, we pray that you might graft your word into our hearts, that it might bear fruit of good works and the fruit of righteousness and the fruit that brings glory and honour to you. Uh, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What's it take to keep company with Jesus? Uh, Jesus first uh, posed that challenge to would-be disciples nearly 2,000 years ago and it still resonates today, doesn't it? Uh, at the end of our reading, you have it open in front of you from verse, six, uh, from verse 26 again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who doesn't carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then he gives the building project kind of illustration and the waging war illustration that you need to count the costs and weigh it up because you pick it up in 33. In the same way, any of you who doesn't give up everything that he has cannot be my disciple. 
What's it take to keep Jesus company? It's, it's high and hard, isn't it? You notice how Jesus turned the screw on his listeners there? In verse 26, it was the generic anyone. You know, um, anyone who comes to me and doesn't hate. Uh, and then in 27, it's the same. Anyone who doesn't carry his cross and follow me can't be my disciple. But then by the time you get to 33, he personalises it. Any of you, if you won't give up everything that you have, you cannot be Jesus' disciple. You cannot keep his company. Yeah, he says these words on his journey down to Jerusalem where he knows he's got to go through um, the degradation and the shame of the cross that he might reach glory. And he's not interested in spectators. He wants recruits. To be Christ's disciple is not just to listen uh, intently to his wisdom, uh, though you need to do that, and it's not just to look again and again with appreciation at the sacrifice he was forced to to do ultimately alone, but we do do that. Ultimately, it's about travelling with him, going where he went. Discipleship is fundamentally a call to be allied to him. It's about allegiance. Uh, Faith does not stop with the moment of decision. Uh, That's where it commences and there, each day, your allegiance is tested. Uh, It's why when we'll be having more of these Travelling with Jesus interviews, and thank you, Liz, um, we're more interested not in finding out when did you start following Jesus, but what's it look like now? How have you gone in travelling again and again with him each day? Uh, Because as J.C. Ryle wrote, it costs something to be a true Christian. Let that not be forgotten. To be a mere nominal Christian and go to church is cheap and easy work. Jesus is not just interested in your Sunday, but your Monday. Uh, And so the action of Luke 14 um, is not centred on temple in a religious kind of structure, but it's there at a dinner party, at a feast. And Jesus is asking us to count the cost and see if we won't join him in our everyday life and follow with him. Uh, For me, reading over Luke 14 over and over this week, uh, much like Liz, I found myself asking, am I humble enough to travel with Jesus? And not not in the sense of humility thinking, you know, is Jesus really better than me? Of course he is. Um, He's a lot better than me. Uh, No, humility has nothing to do with your value or your worth. It's not about superiority or inferiority. What's humility? Humility is a a willing laying aside of your own goals to serve someone else's. Uh, It's a choice that you place yourself under somebody else's authority or place yourself, put yourself out to follow after and do what is good for someone else. And so I know um, many people who don't travel with Jesus, and on the surface it's for a, a variety of reasons. For, for one, uh, I was thinking of it's success. Uh, for another, it's a friendship circle. Uh, for another one, it's the prospect of marriage. Uh, another one, it's the pain of suffering. All different reasons they give as to why they won't travel with Jesus. But, but the more I thought of these uh, friends and, and acquaintances this week and others, I realised there's a common thread of pride that each of them has something they want to cling on to and they won't let go of to follow Jesus. Um, even the one who uh, has suffered greatly holds proudly onto the fact that God has given him no satisfactory answer and so he won't travel with Jesus. Am I humble enough to travel with Jesus? Are you humble enough to keep his company? Now, Luke 13 climax, just a bit before it, uh, with Jesus at a point of his journey where he stands over Jerusalem, looks down on it. And he's met there by some Pharisees just at the end of chapter 13. 
uh, who warn him, don't go down to Jerusalem. Why? Because Herod wants to kill you there. And so what does Jesus do? He calls down a lament. But it's not a lament for himself or his fate. It's a lament for a city that despises its true king. Have a look just at the, the, the end of the chapter before, 13, uh, verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you, you were not willing. He laments over a people unwilling to humble themselves. They won't accept his leadership. They won't go with him. And as we, we read through chapter 14, there's a, there's a strand that runs through of a lack of humility over and over again. Uh, and like all interactions with, with Jesus in the Gospels, they don't just illuminate what Jesus is like, they, they also shine a light back on us. Uh, this morning I want us to see three areas where, where this chapter may expose in us uh, an unwillingness to humbly follow him and hopefully an encouragement to humble ourselves and chase after him. Um, three areas, uh, religiosity, secondly, relationships, and thirdly, priorities. I couldn't squeeze a third R in. It really would have been a stretch. You can give me a third R later on. Uh, first of all, humility and religiosity. Are you humble in your religion? Now, is our religiosity humble enough to actually do good? Uh, episode 1, verse 1 to 6, Jesus is there at a dinner party. Uh, it's the Sabbath day, so it's the day of rest. And he's being watched by the eyes of a leadership who we're already told uh, in chapter 11, they're just looking for ways to trap him. Uh, and a suffering man is there before him, a guy with dropsy, and they're watching to see what he's going to do on this day of rest. But Jesus beats them to the punch, and he actually puts the question to them, the ethical question about doing work to heal... Uh, on a day of rest. And their response in verse 4, but they remained silent. So knowing the table had been turned on them, uh, <laughs> they just say nothing. But Jesus lays his cards down on the table. Uh, he heals the man, obviously, pointedly. And then, if that's not enough, he drives home the point and asks how they would act if it had been their own son or their own ox rather than a stranger who needed help. What would they have done in that situation? And again, their answer from these experts in the law, verse 6, did you see their brilliant answer? They had nothing to say. You know, the emperor's lack of clothing has been exposed. The Pharisees had, had developed, they had crafted a form of religion that had really great rigid boundaries. They could be visibly kept or broken. It was measurable. Everyone could see just how well you're doing on your performance scale with God. But it was completely self-serving. And Jesus, Jesus' road is illuminated, his path on the way to Jerusalem, he is illuminated as one who, one who sees responding to God, who sees religion as actually connected to how we treat and love other people. And so by, you know, in a fairly confronting way, he's inviting the Pharisees to humble themselves, to, to leave their self-serving religion behind. But they're silent. And as you look on them, we look on ourselves, don't we? You know, our culture, we, we look at those Pharisees and their legalism. We're hardly legalistic when it comes to religion, are we? In this modern day and age. But could it be that, that traces of self-service have crept in to the way we approach our religion? You know, we've mastered a saved-by-grace attitude that means you know, we don't care about which days we work and which days we don't work. 
Uh, we're saved by grace, so it's absolutely fine if others in the community have to, to lose the opportunity of a common day off if it means serving us. You know, we're saved by grace, so we can church at our convenience. You know, in days past, people used to kind of set aside Saturday night to, to prepare well for Sunday, that they might use it well to serve others. But if we're tired or we're busy, uh, we've got something else on, oh, we don't mind because our religiosity is, well, we're saved by grace, aren't we? And it's so often what I get out of it, not what good it might do to others for me to serve them. We're saved by grace, but, but does our religious approach pass grace on? Now, I hope you don't mishear me. Uh, one of the saddest things I, I heard recently was uh, a long-time Christian faithfully kind of went to church who uh, gave up years ago expecting that his experience of church on Sunday would ever do him any good for the rest of the week. I found that completely miserable. Uh, and I pray that that's not your experience of, uh, of coming to church, but it is genuinely helpful in you seeking to follow after Jesus every day. I don't want to reduce the measure of um, our religion down to you know, turning up to church as though that's everything in the Christian life. But I do want us to, to think through Jesus' challenge, to count the cost of following him when it comes to our religion. You know, is our religious life for, for the good of those in need and other people or is it just for the good of ourselves? Have we uh, blessed our community with our year of living generously? If you're new to church this year, we'd, uh, we, you know, 2009 was meant to be our year of living generously. Have we blessed the community that way? You know, uh, not just individually, but collectively. Uh, are the programs that, that we run, uh, are they merely self-serving or, or, or do they help others directly or indirectly? You know, I wouldn't want to um, see that, you know, why... My, my comments a few moments ago would see us turn more into our shelves but turn out more uh, to serve others. Yeah, a church I knew of um, grew really rapidly and uh, to meet the growth, uh, more and more of their money was spent on internal issues, you know, more, more property, more staffing. Uh, and the eldership of the church um, took stock and they realised that in their early smaller days they were actually more generous to those outside. Uh, and so even in the middle of a, a fairly large building project, um, they committed to increasing the amount of, that they would give away. Now, are we humble enough to keep Jesus company? Uh, is our religious life uh, for the good, not just for our good? Well, Jesus, after he deals with these, these watchful, legalistic Pharisees, he moves on to the broader group of guests. Uh, in some ways, it seems he is triggered by the way that this disabled man has been so poorly treated. And so in verse 7 he goes on and he tells this pointed parable to those who seek glory and those who seek glorious company. Uh, I suppose our second challenge, a call to be humble in seeking relationships. Now, are we humble enough to relate without a reward, without a payoff? So his story that he goes on to tell in verse 8 uh, about seating at a party and where you choose to go, is basically an elaboration of a proverb, Proverb 25, verse 6 and 7. Uh, do not exalt yourself in the king's presence. Do not claim a place among great men. It's better for him to say to you, come up here, than for him to humiliate you before a nobleman. Uh, it's a principle of how do you relate in a, in, you know, genuinely uh, in a needy world where there are people of different standards and situations. So in Jesus' time, dinner parties were held and it was at a U-shaped table. 
and uh, the, the, the host would be at the base of the U, the kind of the bottom of it with everyone kind of curved around. And, and I suppose the seats of honour were those closer and closer to that base of the U, closer and closer to the, to the host. And then right out at kind of the, the tips of the U would be people who don't know him so well. See, it's, it's not just about a seat, it's about a relationship. It shows who you're close to. And so people would seek the seat of honour, not because the seat was slightly more comfortable, but because it showed they were in a better relationship with a better kind of person, the kind of person who could throw his party as good as this one. Uh, he's my friend, because you notice I'm sitting just two away from him. Uh, yeah. The issue at stake is not just reputation, it's about how you choose to relate. Because in verse 11, Jesus has a principle. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Why? Well, well, God honours those who have friends at both ends of the social ladders. And so Jesus goes on and very pointedly, verse 12, tells another story for his host's benefit and ours too. Verse 12, then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbours, because if you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor and the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus' teaching about relating is just counterintuitive, isn't it? Uh, It's not just about how you choose to sit yourself at a party. It's about graciously seeking relationships with the kind of people who can never pay you back people who are um, below you, people who, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, um, the people who, if others know you went to their house, they would think that you've got the wrong kind of friends, not the right kind of friends. Invite to your table the kind of people who can't throw a party uh, in return that's going to be anywhere near as good as the party you threw. Now, his rhetoric is not saying that there's a blanket ban, you can never do things with your friends. Um, Jesus is a great rhetorical teacher. He just teaches with a bit of punch, doesn't he? Um, it's not a blanket ban on that, but it pushes us to go beyond our natural friendship. Our, our natural tendency, mine is, is to just kind of mix in the same circle of those I know or, or to enter friendships that um, look like they're going to pay off by being at least mutual, that I'll get as much out of the friendship as they will. Uh, to enter friendships with the kind of people who look like they could be friends even if they're not friends yet. But but Jesus said, no, no, costly. Count the costs and relate in a costly way. Uh, The more we delve into Jesus' demands, the more Ryle seems to nail it on the head when he said, it costs something to be a true Christian. Let that not be forgotten. To be a mere nominal Christian, to go to church, is cheap and easy work. Are we humble enough to relate like Jesus? Uh, But... Personally, my heart gets warmed when I, uh, when I hear of people at church um, having brunches, getting to know others, inviting those they don't know uh, and making friends with them because that's the kind of trajectory Jesus sets us on, to, to relate without reward. Uh, last week I was um, uh, at a wedding, uh, a guest there, uh, with a guy who uh, I sat at the table I was seated. That was a, a guy who's a, a pastor out in the Campbelltown area and, uh, and we chatted and I found out he and his wife had six kids and uh, three of them are, are theirs and three were fostered. Uh, one of these foster kids had, had you know, 
particularly put them through a hard time, had run away, got themselves into a lot more trouble, found themselves in juvenile detention, um, and yet they still welcomed him back into their family. Um, just on its own, kind of their, their humble way of building relationships was a, a testimony of Jesus' work. But um, I was probably particularly uh, struck when he told me that 90% of his church were involved in fostering kids. Now, they're not going to be repaid by those kids ever. Uh, but the Lord will remember. In uh, the resurrection of the righteous, God will remember. Uh, Just this week, Andrew Cameron uh, wrote an excellent briefing for um, the Diocese uh, Social Issues Executive uh, on how we as a a church and a community relate to the poor and the crippled and the lame. Uh, It's an excellent article. If you uh, want a copy, you know, on your response slip, just jot down, please send me a copy of that and I'll I'll make sure you get it. Uh, But Andrew makes this observation of Jesus' teaching in Luke 14. Jesus' confronting language about repayment points to how seriously God expects us to include the vulnerable and the frail as people. Jesus utterly subverts our standard way of seeing people uh, as if we matter in virtue of our productivity or our social skills or our success. God will have no part of those who only associate on such terms. When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbours. Jesus hosts no homogenous unit banquets, that is, no banquets where everyone's just the same. Uh, And pro-life churches have no choice other than to follow him in this. The the real challenge of Jesus' teaching about relating is it requires us to realise at one level uh, that we, all of us, are even those blind, poor, crippled and lame. How does it do it? Well, in the next challenge he sets it. So Jesus goes on and he, he speaks more because somebody in the crowd heard Jesus teaching and in verse 15 calls out this really you know, kind of pious platitude. Um, I suspect they thought, oh, I don't know how to break up the rhythm of the party, but I'll, I'll just call out verse 15. Oh, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. As though that will kind of restart the party and quiet Jesus down. Uh, but no, Jesus goes on to paint a picture of the generosity of God and how he throws a party. Uh, And as he does, our third challenge, he humbles us in terms of our short-term priorities. So Jesus likens the kingdom of God to a feast. Again, um, it's not a new idea. It's a story developed from a picture that was first painted or painted before in Isaiah 26. Um, Isaiah 26, verse 6, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines, Uh, And on that mountain, he will destroy the shower that enfolds all people, the sheep that covers all nations. He'll he'll swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. He'll remove disgrace from the people of all the earth. And the Lord has spoken. Uh, And the day they will say, surely this is how God, we trusted him and he saved us. This is the Lord. Uh, We trusted in him. Let's rejoice and let's be glad in his salvation. The world will not end in a whimper. Uh, It won't end in a miserable anticlimax and and heaven certainly won't be dour or dull. The future that God has planned is a cosmic party uh, without pain, with only joy. Uh, Now now in Jesus' days, um, when people threw a big party, uh, it would have a pre-invitation, letting people know, you know, chance to RSVP, say, yeah, I'll be there. Uh, And then a notification when the party actually started, a new message would come around. Uh, And in this story... Rude priorities stepped in, as our kids helpfully learnt from Robin and co. 
uh, earlier on. Rude priorities, verse 18. They all began to make excuses. The first said, oh, just bought a field. Must go and see it. Oh, please excuse me. Another said, oh, just bought five oxen of yoke. Uh, yoke of oxen, sorry. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Another, oh, just got married, so I can't come. Yeah, the excuses are lame. I thought our kids' talk was excellent bringing out how lame those excuses are. Um, you know, the first one, why is he checking out a farm that he's already paid for? Surely he would have checked it out before, before you hand over the cash. Uh, likewise, the second guy, his excuse is just as bad. You know, he's handed over cash for these cows. Is he really now going to go and see if they actually work, if they're breathing? Uh, you know, and the third guy... Uh, he uses an excuse that under Old Testament law could get you out of a military campaign. Okay? This is how you dodge drafting. Uh, you could be married and get out of it. And it seems a little overkill for a party, doesn't it? Uh, that you resort to that level of excuse. Not to mention it's actually a little crass, crass in Jewish society to describe you know, conjugal rights uh, as an excuse for not going to a party in that kind of way. You know, in short, these people are just rude. Uh, someone put it bluntly and beautifully to capture the spirit of these excuses and I suspect the spirit of our age. He said, listen, my friend, if you don't want to be with God, it's not because you're too busy, but because you do not like him, do not want him, and you had better face the fact. Now, away with all the excuses. You know, those too arrogant to appreciate the invitation and the party miss out but that won't stop the party happening in verse 23 and 4. New guests, blind, lame, cripples, poor, those previously excluded are invited in. Uh, in for the original audience, it, it was a kind of warning to the Jewish nation, to Jerusalem, who wouldn't allow themselves to be gathered like little chicks back to Jesus. And, and their lack of humility meant outsiders from every nation under the sun would get there and be at the banquet, uh, not because of their nationality, but because they realised that the banquet is so valuable. And they are humble enough to drop their rude excuses and their foolish priorities to get involved. You know, God gathers those we exclude. God gathers even people like you and me. And yet still there are people who don't take up his offer. Uh, David Buttrick tells a, a story of a family he knew in New York City. Um, every Thanksgiving they would set a huge table, as big a table as they could fit in their place, uh, and um, they would then go out into the streets on Thanksgiving and invite everyone they could find to join them. Uh, the hungry, the lonely, the homeless. You know what was strange? Is they got lots of refusals from desperate people. You know, people who even then, uh, pride and mistrust got in the way. And it's just like this day and age, isn't it, with God's invitation to join his heavenly banquet. People who are desperate and need it, still pride and mistrust get in the way. But others, uh, when, when this family go out and invite people, others stare in amazement at this offer and they go and follow. And the table, apparently every Thanksgiving, ends up filled. Yep, pride and suspicion will keep some out, but there'll, there'll be enough. There'll still be a party. And God throws open the doors to his eternal banquet and, you know, are we humble enough to follow with him? To have a religion that, that seeks good, not self. To, to have relationships that don't look for a payoff. To, to drop our priorities in possessions and career and family for his. And to complete that quote from J.C. Ryle, it costs something to be a true Christian. Never let that be forgotten. To be a mere nominal Christian and go to church is cheap and easy work. But 
to hear Christ's voice and follow Christ and believe in Christ and confess Christ requires much self-denial. It will cost us our sins and our self-righteousness and our ease and our worldliness. All, all must be given up. And our Lord Jesus would have us thoroughly understand this. He bids us count the cost. For as our Lord says, in the same way, any of you who doesn't give up everything that he has cannot be my disciple. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we ask that you would humble us, enable us to be able to follow with you and your Son. Help us to relate in such a way that shows that we understand how you've related to us and invited we who are undeserving into your kingdom. Uh, And Father, we pray that you would keep us walking with Jesus all our days, uh, that we might be there on that resurrection of the righteous and delighting in the party uh, that you have thrown. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.